Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Steve, shall we? Steve Major, HSBC Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Really happy to say he's with us here in New York. Steve, I want to begin with a view from HSBC and quote the following. What appears to be an end to Fed tightening and a corresponding shift in market expectations towards our low for longer rate view. We have changed the tail risk, the tail risk in our long-term yield scenario analysis. As a result, we cut our year-end forecast for both 2019 and 2020 to 2.1%. Let's begin right there. The journey to 2.1%. Frame it for us, Steve. That sounds familiar. Is that something that I wrote? That is something you uh, wrote. Okay. Um, the, it's nine months until year end, and it's a forecast. The, the favorite conversation I have with people, investors, for example, is when someone tells me I'm wrong. And I love it because, you know, how can a forecast be wrong? <laughs> Let's meet on New Year's Eve and discuss whether <laughs> it was wrong or right. But the, the thing is, is that, of course, like any good forecast, it goes, it goes up, in, up in the... It, you actually get it wrong first before you get it right. So on day one of the new forecast, the yield goes up. <laughs> and the, the way I look at it is that you've got some fantastic buying opportunities coming in when, when the yields pop a bit higher. And I, I said on the show earlier that if you've got... People that are willing to buy at 250, 260 on any kind of backup. Let's see if they actually appear. But the, the, the point is, the Fed's not hiking again. The next move is down. So the question is when. If you think it's going to be soon, then you need to pile into the two-year security. The thing is, did you just quote 2.3 for two-year notes? I think I did, okay. yeah. So if you, if you buy a two-year note at 2.3, you've got to be pretty damn sure they cut soon. Not within two years, within within the next nine months. I think that's unlikely. It's unlikely they cut this year. Don't forget, the Fed is still tightening by shrinking the balance sheet. So let's keep this simple. They're still tightening through the balance sheet until September, October. That leaves a very small window this year for the first cut. So the first easing, in whatever form it comes, QE4 or rate cuts, is next year. Probably. And the base case for the team at HSBC Economics yeah. is two cuts next year, right? Yeah, yeah. And don't forget, our guys have taken out what was a hike followed by two cuts to just be two cuts, which means, you know, we're, we're now quite clear on the direction. That uncertainty about the, the residual hike, yeah. I think, is one of the explanations for the gap down in yields this year. And as I said, the, the, the big story is really global. I know it's difficult to see it here in the U.S. because you want to look at U.S. data to get validation for every basis point move in yield. But the truth is it's global. We have lost 1% on global <coughs> growth in the last year. So in terms of the forecast for global growth, one year ago in the Eurozone, think about the optimism. right? So, so, so the, the Eurozone is one-fifth of the global economy. If the Eurozone has lost two big figures on the growth forecast, today compared to a year ago, that's 40 basis points on global growth. Right? So you think the excitement of yesterday off the back of one Chinese PMI read is misplaced, Steve? I'm a little bit concerned a lot of economists are looking at the PMIs as the most important input to their growth forecast. If it was that simple, then you, you wouldn't need all these people looking at it. The, the, po- the point is, is that the PMIs for the last year reflect the, um, the weakening outlook and one month's blip is just that, isn't it? If that is is that the response to the fiscal and monetary loosening that we've had in the, <clears throat> right. is that it? 
<laughs> this goes to the age-old question, Steve Major, is the persistency of high price and lower yield. That's yeah. been one of the arch foundations of your, you know, your great HSBC call. Do you see any idea that that will change and we could see an abrupt price higher, uh, yeah. excuse me, price lower, yield higher? Yeah, there are people out there with that view. <clears throat> they were rewarded for 24 hours, weren't they? But yeah, that's <laughs> everyone has to have their day in the sun. Do I sun. sense you took a little bit of stick yesterday, Steve? No, it's <laughs> it's funny as as, as, <laughs> as, I, as I say, it's a forecast, so it can't be wrong. The, the 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 point is, is that what would have to happen for me to change my mind is the question there today. And you're talking here about a framework shift in the inflation targeting regimes led by the Fed and others. A framework shift, not some tweak to inflation averaging or an overshoot. That's just that's just fiddling with the deck chairs on the on, on the Titanic. There's nothing, the, the, uh, or, or something more serious like towards price level targeting or, or what have you, or a personality shift inside the FOMC. And I guess that might be underway given one of the nominations that came through recently. Th- those are the kind of things that would give you a bearish steepening of the curve. But absent that, it's sort of a, an outlier that doesn't happen. We've, we've had a bullish steepening in the forwards, which means we're setting up a very high hurdle rate. The, you, you know, the, the, for the curve to steepen from here, it's got to beat what's implied in the forwards. And there's 35 basis points in the forwards. It's like, it's like having two cuts price yeah. in. And, and you know, that, that, that's why it's frustrating. There's no instant okay. gratification in these forecasts. So, Steve, you wander out between West Ham football <laughs> games and you actually speak to a buy-side client that manages long-term retirement dollars, yeah. and they ask the question I'll ask. What's the Steve Major actuarial assumption? Yeah, I walk out of the game on Saturday totally depressed, by the way, the West Ham-Everton. So you'd be catching me at the wrong time asking that question if I come out of the football mm-hmm. match. But the, the the this is interesting. From an actuarial point of view, they, they use discount rates that may be way, way too high. Yeah. So... so um, from a liability perspective, you need a higher discount rate because it sort of makes everything look prettier. But your message to them <laughs> at the moment, Steve, is that we've seen peak yields. You've seen that, yeah. So I have this conversation m- many times each week. Um, people are kind of mean reverting. They think it's low, so it has to go up. In the last 10 years, that's not been a satisfactory approach. The last 10 years are, are exceptional in the context of the last 30. I've been working for 33 so I've only seen falling yields, but I've got 700 years of history, if you ever want to see it. 700 years going back to the Dutch bond market. I wish I had a bit more back to the Venetian bond market, but I've got 700 years. The, John the, was there for that. Yeah, John was there. So the yield's only been going down. So, you, look, a lot of people... Uh, I, I heard a clip on before I came on the show. Someone said, I, I fear that we're at the beginning of a multi-decade bond bear market. You could have made that call at any point in the last 30 years. That, that, so it strikes yeah. me that there's a lot of value at 2.5 for US 10s. Just think about this. The real yield, that's a good name for a show. That is. The, the, the real yield on the US is 50 basis points. That's a big fat number. In the Eurozone, it's minus 50, minus 50 to 100. The US looks cheap globally. Steve, really good perspective and great to have you in the studio with us here in New York City. A special thanks to Steve Major, HSBC Global Head of Fixed Income Research.
John Farrow, New York. I'm Tom Keene at Queen Victoria Street in London. And both John and I are thrilled to have Dark in the Door. Emma Ross Thomas driving forward all of our Brexit coverage. I really can't say enough out on Twitter, at Brexit. And, of course, at Bloomberg.com, the combined effort of grizzled, and I might point out, Emma Ross Thomas, exhausted reporters. Give our audience worldwide a vignette of last night. It's 10 10 p.m. here, and I was really quite taken by the drama late in the night. And then what do you do, wrap up shop about 2 a.m. London time? Yeah, it might have been that late. So the dra- the real drama last night was that, you know, some of us have been getting quite excited that one of these proposals might yeah. just get a majority or a, or a convincing did. plurality. None of them did. And the frustration in the House yeah. of Commons was palpable. Nick Bowles, who is a Tory MP who basically has been writing this plan for a soft Brexit, it never looked like it had much hope. But yesterday afternoon, you know, perhaps there was starting to build some support around it. And then when it was defeated, he stood up and said, I have, you know, given everything yeah. to this. I have failed. And then here was the punch. He said, I failed because right. my colleagues mm-hmm. in the Tory party have refused to compromise. And with that, he resigned right. from the Conservative Party. Okay. Um, Americans have an image of a quote-unquote cabinet meeting at 10 Downing Street. It usually involves John Lithgow. I think of Anthony Eden uh, in the Suez crisis in the in the show The Crown on Netflix. And we have our images, our stereotypes of what a cabinet meeting is. The Telegraph right now says it's a mammoth cabinet meeting going on. What's visualized for us? Is it like eight people around a table? What is a cabinet meeting in the United Kingdom? So the, the, the table is famously coffin-shaped. Um, oh, great. So draw from that what you will. Um, yes, it is a it is a marathon session because there is a there's a there's a political session um, as well. That's fueled speculation that perhaps one of the things that they might be talking about is an election. Um, Theresa May is also going to be talking to them about the the possibility of a long extension, and that you know. Think about this for a minute. Three years after the UK voted to leave the EU. We might well be voting in EU elections next. Is there month. a lot of yelling and screaming? Uh, probably. There's also, you know, what has characterised cabinet meetings recently is not only the the, the rows, the arguments, but also the <clears throat> leaking. Um, yeah. And in fact, something that that's something that Theresa May has been a bit uh, has tried to crack down on. I mean, I, this is important, and John Farrow, I think, would be great on this as well. I was thunderstruck when Jeremy Corbyn stood up last night about ten thirty in the night. London time, and he looked across that famed table at the green couches, and a completely exhausted Prime Minister May. I can't think of any equivalent of that in U.S. politics. Reagan was very tired in his second term. George Bush Sr. was tired. LBJ, worn out from Vietnam, etc. But nothing like what I observed last night. Does she have her full facilities now? Is she vibrant and able to think clearly about the path forward. But I think what's been so remarkable about Theresa May is that she is almost um, immune to, or appears to be anyway, immune to some of the things that, that, that might put off other people. She seems to be absolutely incapable of feeling humiliation. You know, newspapers write about humiliating defeats. And of course, Theresa May, yeah. it seems to just wash off her and she and she plows <clears throat> on. Um she did, uh, you know, a few days ago, she was sort of suffering with a very bad cough. She could hardly speak. And the optics of that were just terrible. Now, I think, actually, she seems in much better sort of 
physical health and she continues to say yeah. that her deal is the best option and it looks like she's going to continue fighting for that deal until the absolute right. last moment. John? Some scathing words from the former Conservative MP Anne Widdicombe on BBC Newsnight last night that I think for many people this will resonate with. You mentioned Anthony Eden, Tom. We've got the worst Prime Minister since Anthony Eden. Her words, not mine. <laughs> we've got the worst leader of the opposition party in the entire history of the Labour Party. And we've got the worst Parliament since Oliver Cromwell. Is that the mood of the country right now? I think it probably is, and, and that might be, um, I mean, something to bear in mind as we are possibly heading towards a, a, a general election. Certainly, you know, the public is very weary with Brexit, weary with uh, politicians playing games. And the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that Parliament has become increasingly entrenched in its divisions. There were people last night who, yeah. a year ago, would have happily voted for the, the soft Brexit option that failed, but they didn't. Okay, well, quickly, what happens today? What are you and the team looking for in the next 24 hours? Well, what we're looking for today is what comes out of the cabinet meeting, basically. What it's just has that simple. To, what has Theresa May told them? Are we going to a general election? Or maybe what are they have told to, her. Right. Are we going to yeah. a long extension? Um, yeah. And then, you know, what is the EU going to say? We're going to have an EU <clears> summit on April the 10th. It's going to be two days before yeah. what's meant to be a cliff edge. And the other thing that we are still chasing is... We think that no deal is off the table. Theresa May has said right. she won't do no deal without Parliament's consent. Steve Barclay, a Brexiteer, said last night um, that no deal was essentially okay. off the table. Is it, though? We've got to leave it there. Emma Ross Thomas, congratulations to your team on just terrific Brexit coverage. I am absolutely positive that David Page of Angster Investment Managers does not want to discuss BlackRock. David, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's talk about the transatlantic situation, shall we? The US economy, the UK economy. I want to begin with the United States. It's a really, really tough time to get your hands around where this US economy is going. A lot of people started the year by saying, look, this is what's going to happen. The economy growth is going to decelerate. We're going back towards trend. And some people might confuse that with a sinister turn in the US economy. Are we confusing it with the sinister term? Because the ISM yesterday was some fuel for that argument. Yes, I think we are confusing it. And I think the, the real difference has come through from the weakness in the global economy and how the Federal Reserve has reacted to that, and particularly, for example, to the change in financial conditions at the end of the year. But I think we are looking at more of a slowdown. We, as at AXA Investment Managers, are looking for more of a slowdown than the market's been considering. Um, it was a relatively benign forecast at the start of the year to see a slowdown from 2.9 to 2.6 on the Bloomberg consensus. And we were always looking at it being a little bit softer than that at 2.3, but 2.3 is still solid. Um, it, it really isn't that bad. And I think what markets have, have mis mistaken, I think, is the fact that we've got a very poor, weak global growth backdrop, but one that we think is entering in nadir now. So as we look to the rest of this year, we expect to see acceleration. And that acceleration is going to be something that keeps the Fed on hold. So I think the story this year has been markets pricing for a Fed cut. And I think the story for the rest of the year is going to be markets pricing that cut back out. Well, this is what I find fascinating about the market right now. We had Steve Major of HSBC on a program about 50 minutes ago. You were sitting there in the green room with him. And here we are having two completely different conversations. Steve and the team at HSBC, the team following the economics, forecasting two cuts next year from the Federal Reserve. You're talking about pricing those cuts out. This is a really binary market. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think you know, what we're talking about is a difference of timing. So for 
the Stephen Major view, the, the fall in yields, we totally see the downward pressure in neutral rates. We see the impotence of global central banks come the next downturn. Our argument is that we're just not there yet. And actually what we're going to see, partially because of a re-stimulus of the Chinese economy and the spillover effects we expect that to have on the rest of the world, is a period where you see some stasis come through, some growth that's really not too bad. Um, we, we are like it really to the 1998 spell. There we did see the Fed cut rates, and then we, we returned for a couple of years before the downturn. So to be clear here, David, you do think that PMI from China yesterday was a pivotal point for this market, because some people are coming out throwing cold water on that. One data point, yes, it's decent, but it's too early. What's your argument? Yeah, we don't think that this data point is necessarily the key. What we suggest is the key turning point was the pickup in total social financing that came through in January. And historically, when we've seen that borrowing start to pick up, there's always been around a six-month lag before you've seen economic stabilisation. So that's what we expect, stabilisation around mid-year. The PMI may well be a straw in the wind that is flagging that stabilisation, but we will see more evidence of that over the coming months. We're going to go to the IMF meetings, I don't know, X number of weeks. We've got a wonderful memo from them. They're really uh, doing a whole new effort on uh, their famous world economic outlook and all the rest of them. Uh, David Page, are we anywhere near global recession? I mean, do we go into IMF talking about 3% global growth? No, I don't think we do. Um, and I think, you know, th- there's doubtless, you know, at the nadir, it's very hard to, to recognize the turning point. There will doubtless be risk scenarios around that. And we also live in a world where there are marked risks that we think are affecting asset prices as well. We've talked to death about Brexit and there is a real fear of something nasty happening there in two weeks. We happen to think that won't, that won't come to pass. We've still got trade negotiations ongoing. We see a relatively benign outcome coming through there. But markets at the moment recognize significant downside risk. I think if you get past those risk events and you start to see global growth coming through, the second half of this year is going to look a lot more benign than we currently fear. This is just simple. If it's Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, is it just NX? I mean, is all the marginal improvement you're calling for off improved exports and import dynamics or is it over on the other side of the domestic ledger it it comes across because from a u.s perspective the the translation is not necessarily on net trade it comes through from financial conditions so you've got dollar strength which is affecting obviously the inflation outlook and the inflation outlook feeds through into both corporate backdrop and the household spending backdrop so if we start to see a, a firmer global backdrop, then you'll, you'll see firmer domestic activity coming through. And there's there's all sorts of noise in that as well, weaker um, government spending in Q1 that we expect to pick up in Q2, Q3. So no, it's not just a net trade story. But if you look at somewhere like the Eurozone, where net trade is a much bigger um, component, right. yes, we do expect to see a pickup in net trade, and that will help um, unwind some of the exacerbated slowdown of the second half of last year. What's the optimal euro price? I mean, I walked in the door here at QVS this morning, and in it was a 111 handle. It was near a 112, but 111 ever weaker euro. Is that the trend forward? No, we don't think so. Um, I think you remove Brexit risk. Um, that's a big shout at the moment. But if you do, um, then that takes some of the, the euro dollar weakness out. I think if you move into a place where, where global growth and particularly Chinese growth is, is not weighing on eurozone economic activity, then we start to see some upside come through there and some of the dollar safe haven starts to flow. So actually, we think we'll see some, dollar, um, some euro appreciation. Um, and as we move into next year, we wouldn't be too surprised to see something like 120, which would be perverse, even if you see the Fed starting to consider uh, the possibility of rate hikes again. Well, just to wrap things up, David, 
Tom spelling out the equation for GDP. Something you mentioned, though, was government spending. So let's talk about that, not just trade. That's been a big factor here in the United States. Some people increasingly think incrementally we may see a change in Europe on the government spending side. Are you optimistic about that? Well, uh, we do think it's something that, for example, is going to come through from the German government. So we see a more positive backdrop coming through there. Um, We don't think that that's a major driver. I think one of the key issues for Europe is that it doesn't have major drivers. Europe as a whole tends to be a taker of global growth. The ECB has tried, but it's always been behind the curve. Uh, Fiscal stimulus has been relatively restrained. So we see it as a marginal boost to GDP, but nothing that's a game changer. Hey, David, great to catch up with you, as always. David Page, AXA Investment Manager, Senior (coughs) Economist for the US and for the UK. Really pleased to say that joining us on the phone now, Tom, is Jim Paulson, the Luthold Group Chief Investment Strategist. The constructive view from Jim coming up. And Jim, quote, I think the environment for stocks remains good. Why, Jim? Well, you know, I, I guess there's a few things I really like. I, I think that we have uh, did a great job of revaluing this stock market. And even though we've rallied significantly, we're still selling only about average uh, price earnings multiple since 1990, and really only average price earnings multiple all the way back to 1950, given that we're in a sweet spot between 1% and 3% inflation. Uh, so th- there's still, I think, room on the upside. A, a 20 multiple has been a common uh, multiple that's occurred at the top of bull markets here in recent uh, recoveries. And, you know, if you get 20 times earnings at some point here, given how low rates are that you're just talking about, how low inflation is, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me that we could reach that. And even if earnings are flat this year, let's say around 160 on the S&P 500, that could still give you you know something like a 3,200 uh, valuation on the S&P 500. But if you combine those low valuations with very low interest rates, very low inflation, which make them look even more attractive, then you would then you uh, realize that the entire cavalry has come to the support of economies all over the world, as well as stock markets. Both monetary and fiscal stimulus is now being devoted. And I think, lastly, I think sentiment is still highly cautious, and we're still climbing basically a wall of worry. So let's talk about that final point, Jim, because I think it's an important one. The sentiment is still highly cautious. Some people will struggle to reconcile that with an equity market that is about two percentage points from an all-time high. Give us a window into that a little bit more, Jim. What gives you the clarity? Well, you know, first, the the rally, we often think that the market has gone up primarily because of buying. But often the market goes up because of lack of sellers. I think in March of 2009, when the market first took off in the 08 crisis, there was no buyers. It was just that all the selling was done. And I think that same thing happened here. A lot of people with the collapse in December uh, sold and, and uh, got out of the way. And once that cleared, there was no sellers. The market rallied again. But I just think today, John, that there's just a lot of things out there to keep people worried. You know, we got the December swoon, which caught people off guard. It still scares people that, oh, boy, that could be the start of the bear. We got 
recovery is soon going to be the longest ever in U.S. Yeah. history. How can it last much longer? We've got negative yields all over the globe uh, in a unique experience in the post- post-war era. The Fed just scared everybody by guaranteeing no rate hikes this year, yeah. a very irregular policy. <clears throat> Economic reports are very weak. Uh, we got fears that other economies could pull us into recession. We've got trade wars and Brexit. Uh, we wonder if our policy officials are out of bullets. I'm just saying okay. I still think there's a wall of worry we're climbing. I'm not disagreeing with that. I did a chart on TV today. I'll put it out for you to see on Bloomberg Radio on Twitter. But it's real simple, Jim Paulson. We're 2% below Dow record highs of the glory days of the summer, I believe it was, of last year. We had courage to own equities last summer, pre-October, pre-December. Do we have the same courage now? I, I think it's strikingly different. Now, I agree with you. We had a lot of optimism, maybe the greatest optimism of yep. the entire recovery last year. But it's not there right now. I think, like I say, it, that's why I think it could still return. At some point, we, we're going to decide, I believe, that we're not going to recess anytime real soon. And that could, that could bring buyers back into this okay. market that are now underweighted. And then at some point, to your point, we could get exuberant again. Okay, but... but- was December the mother of all cathartic events? I mean, it was so traumatic, we don't use traditional John Maggie technical analysis. Was it the mother of all catharsis? You know, Tom, John I, knew that band. They did Def Leppard like no one in the Midlands of England. <laughs> I, I don't ever remember December like that, ever, in my entire career. I agree. I totally agree. Everybody's out there doing a history lesson. I'm like, no, it was original. It was original, and I and I think it shocked all of us, myself included, that that happened during December. But it looks increasingly like the 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 oddity what was what was incorrect and inappropriate was more the December swoon than the January rally, and we maybe overdid the selling uh, more than we should have. It just got kind of out of control. Uh, but I'm not sure of that, but. I think there are some fundamentals showing up again here, uh, suggesting that we have definitely slowed down but not uh, headed for a recession. And if that's the case, there's a lot of underweighted portfolios now, in part because of the unique December swoon. So listening to what you've got to say, Jim, it seems to me that you think the pain traders' stocks still go higher. But if we think about what December gave us, it was a panic trade. It was a panic over a policy mistake. What we have now is an obsession over recession. Tom Keen and I pretty much every single morning are asking, what's your recession view? To pretty much every single person that comes on this program. And what's amazing to me, Jim, is you have some people with great conviction that say there isn't going to be one anytime soon. And then equally, some people with fantastic conviction that say it's around the corner, the Fed's going to need to cut. Jim, when do these kind of things reconcile? How long does it take to shake this out of the market for things to settle down one way or the other? Well, I think data ultimately is going to settle it. It won't be the Fed. It'll be actual data, which is the Fed's boss, if you will, telling the Fed what they have to do. And I think, I think between now and summer, that is my guess, that we're either going to find out that this, the, the economy is really falling off a cliff, both here and abroad, or there's enough green shoots to say this is more just a mid-cycle slowdown. Uh, and given the policy response, the aggressive policy response, both in fiscal and monetary around the globe, it's more likely if it's just a slowdown that it's going to reaccelerate again. Yeah. So I think by late summer, we're, we're going to decide whether we have imminent recession or whether we overreacted to that. 
Hey, Jim. Jim Great to catch up with you. Jim Paulson there, the Luthold Group Chief Investment Strategist, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.